0: Matthew chapter 1, and beginning our reading at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid and Abuid, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Imagine uh, you were going to sit down and watch a movie. Maybe it is a tradition in your household uh, to watch a movie uh, over the Christmas holidays. But if you were going to sit down and to watch a movie, uh, imagine sitting down to watch that movie and it's already in the middle of the story. Uh, Unless you've seen the movie before, you would have a hard time understanding what is going on. Uh, You would have a hard time appreciating some of the details Uh, certain details maybe other observers or uh, people watching the movie would be able to pick up on and to see the connections but you would have a hard time understanding the flow of how the story is being told and what causes it to all fit together and so if you're going to watch a movie preferably you would want to begin at the beginning so that you can understand the whole story so that you can appreciate all the parts And that you can make sense of what is going on. Christianity uh, is a message that we are to trust in Jesus. It is a message of good news. That Jesus is Lord and Savior. And that by believing in him, uh, we have eternal life. But the question that comes to the mind is, is, why should we trust in Jesus? Why should we believe that Jesus is a Savior of sinners? And why we should trust in him in particular to take away our sins. And we could answer that in many ways. But as we turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, we want to see that Matthew begins by going back to the beginning. He wants to go back in time so that we can understand Jesus in light of the larger story of God's work of salvation. And so when we think about Jesus, we're thinking about what God has been doing. And how God's work finds its fulfillment in Jesus himself. And so we want to look at this genealogy this morning in order to appreciate who Jesus is and why we should believe in him. We want to see that Jesus is the center of God's story of salvation and therefore we're to trust in him by faith. The gospels give us a record of the life uh, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so you might expect that the Gospels would begin with the occasion of Jesus' birth. And Matthew will get there. But before Matthew tells us something about the occasion of Jesus' birth, Matthew begins with this genealogy, a list of names. Uh, a list of names, many, some of them and maybe even many of them uh, we are unfamiliar with. Why does Matthew do that? Well, part of the reason you could say is because the Jewish people had a great interest in understanding their ancestry; that it was very important for the Jewish people to be able to see their their connection with the past, to be able to understand their place and their connection with Abraham, uh, to understand their place and their connection with the people of God, and so they looked at their own story not in isolation. They looked at their own life, not in isolation, but they saw themselves as part of something much bigger. They saw themselves in in light of God's promises over the centuries. And so genealogies were important for understanding themselves, for understanding their own time in light of all of God's purposes throughout time. And here, as uh, Matthew begins with a genealogy, it's not just for interest's sake but rather to be able to appreciate our own story in light of God's story. Maybe uh, some of you can remember, uh, it hasn't been that long ago since uh, the Gideons used to distribute those red New Testaments in the schools. Uh, And every fifth grader had the opportunity to be given a Gideon's New Testament. And maybe you can recall uh, such an experience But when someone would receive one of those New Testaments and they would open up the binding, they would turn over the cover, they would come very quickly to Matthew chapter 1. And as they come, they see a list of names. They read Perez. They read Aminadab. They read Jotham. And we might wonder, I thought this was about Jesus. And I'm getting a list of names. Why is that happening? But what Matthew is doing is is Matthew is wanting to bring us back to the beginning, to be able to look at Jesus in light of God's whole purposes. There are many things that we could say about this genealogy. Matthew's doing a whole bunch of things by writing this genealogy of Jesus. We can see how he is highlighting, for instance, uh, several women in this genealogy. In the ancient world, genealogies would uh, capture someone's place by saying who their father was. But you'll notice that in this genealogy, it mentions several women. uh, Several women in their place and their connection uh, with God's unfolding story. We could also highlight this genealogy in terms of how Matthew is showing that the family of Jesus includes not just Jews, but Gentiles. That Matthew calls attention to the fact that Rahab, the Canaanite, is part of Jesus' ancestry. How Ruth, who is a Moabitess, is part of Jesus' ancestry. That the family of Jesus is not simply those who are uh, biologically or physically connected with Abraham, but that it includes the Gentiles as well. And so Jesus' mission to save his people is not just something for the Jews, but he is a savior of sinners, including Gentiles. And so we see that in this genealogy as well. But as we look at it this morning, we want to look at this genealogy based on the way that Matthew structures his genealogy. And you see the the way that he structures it, both by what he says at the beginning in verse 1 and what he says down in verse 17. That what he wants us to do is he's focusing in on three names. He's focusing in on Abraham. He's focusing in on David. And then he's focusing in on Jesus. And we want to think about this genealogy and what it tells us about Jesus in, those, uh, in that light. That he is a son of Abraham and he is uh, a son of David. First, it tells us uh, there at the beginning, this is the book of the genealogy, the book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. The name of Abraham is vitally important uh, and was vitally important for the people of God. Abraham was the patriarch of the faith. Abraham was that person who was the recipient of God's promises. That in a world that was under and subject to the curse of sin, and we read about how sin had wreaked havoc on the world ever since our first parents sinned. After reading about sin's curse in Genesis, it's not till Genesis 11 that we get this idea of blessing. Now we begin to see how God's blessing will begin to uh, come to fruition. Because God comes to Abraham and uh, promises that he will bless Abraham. That he will give him a nation. That from Abraham a great nation will come to be. That he will give him a land where he can have rest. A promised land. And that not only that but he promises Abraham that in and through Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so for the descendants of Abraham, for the people of God, their whole life was to be structured by this promise of God. It was to be structured by an understanding that their story has not yet been fully told because God is going to do something. He is going to cause blessing to be realized wherein they live in a world of curse. Where they live in a world that is subject to sin. Where they see division. Where they see trials. Where they see the effects of sin all around them. They're to live understanding that God has promised to bring blessing. And so uh, this mention here that Jesus is a son of Abraham. Should be a flag that calls attention to the fact that God's promise to bless the nations is at the forefront of understanding Jesus. Abraham did uh, have a great nation come from him. As it goes on to explain there in the genealogy. That there is Isaac and then there's Jacob. And then we have uh, the father of Judah and his brothers. We begin to see the expansion of Abraham's line. They do become a great nation. And in time they do enter the land of Canaan. They do enter the land of rest. And yet the promised blessing is not fully realized because Israel does not become a blessing to the nations in fullness. It's only, it's only incidentally, it's only in a partial way that we begin to see it. But that promise is nevertheless uh, there. But when you read this genealogy, you can't, if we recognize any of these names, the names that we do recognize We can't think of their stories apart from sin. You think about Abraham. Abraham was someone who willingly was willing to forsake his own wife in order to save his own skin, simply calling her his sister when he was married to her. You think about Jacob, who was willing to deceive his own father in order to steal away a blessing. You think about Judah, who fathered Perez and, uh, uh, through his uh, daughter-in-law, Tamar. We see through each of these people that their stories are tainted by sin. Their stories are marked by sin. And that's not just true of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and Judah. That's true of every one of us. That all of our stories are marked by our Failure to live according to God's commands, our foolishness, and uh, by sin in general. We, our story is marked by many trials, by many disappointments, and it is ultimately marked uh, by death itself, the consequence of sin. Sin not only attacks our relationships in life, but sin is something that ultimately separates us from the, the blessing and the fellowship with God. So God's promise here of blessing was made to sinners in spite of their sin. But that blessing was meant to shape the way that Abraham lived, the way that Isaac lived, the way that Rahab lived. All of these people lived knowing that they were sinners. But they were living trusting that God had promised to bless. And he would bless the nations. And so here when Matthew begins his story, when he begins his gospel about Jesus... Let me introduce Jesus to you. Jesus is son of Abraham. That's supposed to mean something. That Abraham was promised that through his offspring all the nations would be blessed. And what Matthew is saying here is Jesus is that promised offspring. Jesus is the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the one who comes to reverse the curse of sin. In order to bring God's blessing on a people who are living under the power of sin themselves. And so here we have this uh, uh, um, indication of how to think about Jesus. He is the son of Abraham. This is the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But then secondly, he describes Jesus in a second way. The beginning or the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Matthew introduces him by another key turning point in history, uh, in the history of God's purposes, which is the establishment of David's kingdom. You remember in our evenings, we have been going, we went through First and 2 Samuel, and we looked at how God established a kingdom in David. But you remember one of the key passages in the book of Samuel is when God comes to David through Nathan, God promises David, That when your days are fulfilled, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, and your offspring will serve the Lord, and I will build his house. That the Lord promised his blessing to David and to David's offspring. And you remember how we highlighted that when the Lord came to David, he echoed those promises that were given to Abraham. The Lord promised David, I will make your name great. I will appoint you a place and I will give you rest. The same elements that were promised to Abraham carry over now. They're clarified now in David. This is how God's blessing will come about. It is through a king. And more than that, it is through a king from the line of David. After your days are fulfilled, David, I will raise up one of your offspring to do this. Solomon Failed in that regard. And so did the other kings. As you read through this genealogy. You begin to realize some of those names. These are men who to varying degrees were faithful uh, at best. And downright apostates at their worst. We have people like Hezekiah. A godly king who nevertheless was a sinner himself. And then you have people like Manasseh. Who was engaged in child sacrifice? You have varying degrees of kings. And as J.C. Ryle says, when we look at this list, it is a very humbling matter because it teaches us that grace does not automatically pass through families, that there is more to being a child of God than simply having a godly example. When you look at many of these kings, they had godly examples, and yet they turned out to be wicked kings. Rehoboam had Solomon, a wise king, and yet Rehoboam was a wicked king. But it wasn't just Rehoboam either. We can look to other kings as well. We think of Joram, we think of Amnon, we think of Jeconiah. All of these men were wicked kings who had wicked godly examples and it's a reminder to us that those who are born again are born not of the will of man but they are born of god that salvation is more than just copying an example or simply imitating someone else that being a christian is one that has been changed by god's spirit who has been convicted of the truth of their sins but who is being shaped by God's grace. And so as you look at this genealogy, you're starting to see a story emerge here. You're seeing God's promises being directed towards a king that would emerge, a king who would establish righteousness, a king whose kingdom would endure forever, one who would be uh, able to bring rest and peace. And yet you look at these kings and they all fall short. And so this story is moving over time, and we see again and again people failing. They are sinners themselves, and yet God's purposes carry forward. So David uh, uh, is at the center of this genealogy. He's at the center because he's highlighted as a king. He's at the center here in the mention that he's the 14th of those that are mentioned. He's mentioned at the beginning and the end of this genealogy. In all of these ways, uh, it is highlighting uh, that Jesus is a son of David. And when it says that, it's calling attention to those promises that I will raise up an offspring of David and I will build his house and it will endure forever. That my steadfast love will not depart from the house of David as it departed from the house of Saul. You trace that throughout uh, history. Again, uh, many of these kings were not godly at all. And in fact, their ungodliness brought God's judgment on the nation. In the time of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah announced the Lord's judgment uh, that uh, uh, none of the offspring of Jeconiah would sit on the throne of David and rule again in Judah. That sounds like a terminus point. God had promised that the line of David would continue. And now Jeremiah in his day says the line of Jeconiah ends. His offspring will not sit on the throne. But as one commentator points out, in his wrath, God remembers mercy. In his anger against Jeconiah's sins and unfaithfulness, the Lord remembers his grace. And he then later proclaims through the same prophet Jeremiah that he would bring Jeconiah and his offspring back from exile. That there would be an end to the Babylonian reign. That the Lord would bring judgment on Babylon and his people would come back to Israel. And so you read on in this genealogy, it doesn't end with the ending of David's kingdom. It goes on past the deportation. What's it doing there? It's reminding us that the story carries on. There was a promise about a king. That that promise seemed to be devastated when the kingdom of Israel was demolished. And yet, God brought them back to Israel so that there would remain this hope, so that there would remain this flame of light that God would bring a king and they were to put their hope in that coming king. And so people like Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and others were to come back. They never did become kings, but they were those who were building an anticipation of a king who would emerge. One who would establish God's grace and one who would restore God's blessing to a people under the curse of sin. So who is Jesus? The message of Christianity teaches us we're to believe in Jesus. Jesus claims to be the Savior of sinners. He claims that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus claims to be the great I am. Before Abraham was I am. Jesus doesn't just make these claims, though, out of out of thin air. There's a context to them. And Matthew wants to bring us back to the beginning. To say, do you understand God's story of salvation? Do you understand what God has been doing down through history? Do you understand that all of time has been moving according to God's purposes? Because when you understand the context, you have a way of framing your understanding of Jesus. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the one to bring the blessing to a people under the curse of sin. Jesus is the son of David. He's the one to rule over his people and to establish righteousness where others have failed. And we're to believe in him because he's the fulfillment of God's promises. He's the center of God's story. So when we think uh, of the problem of evil in this world, when we think about the purposes of God, we have a framework for understanding who Jesus is. (coughs) The genealogy of Jesus then is telling us something about the background from which Jesus came. He is the son of Abraham And he is the son of David. But there's a third thing that is told to us about Jesus in this genealogy. Not only is he the son of David, not only is he the son of Abraham, but he is also the son of Mary. When you read through this genealogy, you'll see that there's a certain pattern. We've already uh, alluded to it. Ancient genealogies would carry from father to father. So-and-so begat so-and-so. Person A produced person B, that they were the father of this other uh, person. And it tells us the timeline through fathers. And that is followed in this genealogy until you get to verse 16. And it's a striking break from that pattern. And one that shows a very clear intention in Matthew's part. He does not want you to think that Joseph produced a son. He denies that by the wording that he gives. Instead of saying, and Joseph, father Jesus. Or instead of saying, Joseph begat Jesus. He goes on and says in verse uh, 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. That Jesus was born of Mary, but he was not produced by Joseph that there's something different about Jesus. And so when we ask the question, why should we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promised blessing, that he is the one through whom all the nations of the earth can be blessed and to be restored with God? Why are we to think that this Jesus, when there are many people who were descendants of David, why are we to think that this Jesus is the one who will establish righteousness and make us right with God once again? Why are we to look to this Jesus And Matthew's genealogy is to say, because this Jesus is different. This Jesus is not tainted by sin. That sin is part of our story. And it is something that has passed from generation to generation. But that this Jesus is born by the power of God. As it says elsewhere in Luke, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. As Matthew will get to the birth of Jesus, he'll explain that this is because he is uh, 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 produced. He is brought forth by the power of the Spirit, that he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why are we to believe in this Jesus? Because he's not only fully man, but because he is fully God. That he is able to do the work of God because he is God in the flesh. That's why we can be confident that he will succeed. That he will bring salvation. And that he will bless those who are under sin's curse. And so we see that it's because Jesus uh, is different than all those who have come before. Jesus' birth then is the good news because it signals the arrival of God's promised blessing to those who are under the curse of sin. Because Jesus is the Son of God, he is able to fulfill all of God's promises. But then you can back it up and look at it the other way. He is different. He is born of Mary. He is He is brought forth by the power of God because he is God incarnate. But then when we understand who Jesus is, it changes the way that you read the genealogy. Imagine that you go home and in your family archives you find something out about your family history. That someone in your family line did something terrible. You would probably not want that to come to the light of day. You might, might want to bury that news. If it's terrible enough, you may even contemplate changing your last name. Because you want to disassociate from that action. You don't want to be known by that act. But when you realize who Jesus is, this genealogy takes on even more meaning. Because the Son of God, who took on flesh, identifies with Sinners. That his family background is a story of sinners. And Jesus came from a family of sinners in order to save sinners. And so when we understand that Jesus is willing to identify with sinners, it gives hope that the one who is high and lifted up, the one who is without sin, the one who is God over all, is willing to come low to meet us in our need. That he is willing to identify with sinners to the point that he is willing to have a prostitute in his ancestry, that he is willing to have Gentiles who lived in darkness part of his ancestry, that he is willing to identify with those who are sinners, ultimately to rescue their story. How is our story going to end? Our story, we said, is marred by sin. We see foolishness. We see mistakes. We see failures in our story. We can look at our story and there are things in it that we're ashamed of. How does our story get rescued? The genealogy here is telling us it's only when we look at our story in light of a bigger story. When we live our story in light of what God's story is about. And God's story is focused on his son, the Lord Jesus. And when we read this story, we can say who Jesus is. He's the son of Abraham, the one that brings God's blessing to the nations. He's the son of David. He's the one who will rule over all things, that his kingdom will have no end. He is the prince of peace, that he is the son of Mary. He is the son of God, and he is Lord over all things. Have we come to understand who Jesus is, the one who was born in the fullness of time in order to save sinners? Jesus can save our story. Have you put your trust?